Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. All right, good morning, everyone, and thank you for being with us again today. At this hour, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation is a nonprofit membership organization that seeks to document, honor, and preserve the architectural heritage and cultural history of several downtown New York City neighborhoods. They seek both to protect historic resources and to monitor new development via an array of advocacy and outreach efforts, involvement in gubernatorial uh, process and public discourse, and educational programs for adults and children. I will talk to its executive director, Andrew Berman, this morning. He's our guest today. Also at this hour, last month, New York City had its first cryptocurrency or Bitcoin real estate closing First closing, unbelievable. The next uh, next week, the an owner of the plaza floated the idea of selling a plaza token to a group of foreign investors. Now a hedge fund founder and tech investor and owner of the landmark townhouse at 10 East 76th Street. He is asking $30 million in U.S. dollars or $45 million of value in Bitcoin, and he is willing to accept Bitcoin, but we shall see. First, But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate, and I am your host, Vince Rocco. Welcome once again. Here in the news this week, I want to talk about some of the we- last weekend's uh, open house numbers. Traffic was slightly better than the weekend before with 3.65 visitors versus 3.51, or about 4% more from last weekend. open houses with zero attendance. That's quite a lot. 20% open houses with zero attendance. 12.9% of all open houses had zero attendance. The week before, it was only 16%. That's still a big number. Brooklyn is hot, as we always talk about on this show, but not all of Brooklyn. Park Slope and Brooklyn Heights were busy. The rest of Brooklyn were below the weekend average. The Upper West Side, as always, was very strong, 67% stronger traffic on the Upper West Side than the Upper East Side, for example. And three-bedroom traffic uh, is a bit uh, deceiving because of an incredibly busy open house at 333 West End Avenue. 32 people showed up, but without it, three beds got around three and a half visitors. Townhouses, this one surprised me. Townhouses are always strong, uh, and 5.2% Three percent people attended townhouse open houses. I'm a little shocked at that. And of course, the two to three million dollar price point received the best average uh, in attendance of that week. So moving on, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation is a nonprofit membership organization that seeks to document, honor, and preserve the architectural heritage, as I said before, and cultural history of several downtown New York City neighborhoods. For example, uh, these neighborhoods are Greenwich Village, the Far West Village, the Meatpacking District the South Village, NoHo, and the East Village. The South Village, you have to explain that one to me. In these historic (laughs) neighborhoods, the Society for Historic Preservation seeks both to protect historic resources and to monitor new development via an array of advocacy group, I hate that word, and outreach efforts. It's worked towards securing historic district and landmarks protection, saving significant buildings from demolition, securing contextual zoning for sections of neighborhoods, and right-sizing plans for new construction has earned wide praise from uh, preservation leaders. The Society for Historic Preservation has received numerous distinctions in the preservation and real estate circles, such as the Preservation League of New York's Excellence in Historic Preservation Award for Organizational Excellence and Executive Director Andrew Berman's inclusion in the New York Observer's The 100 Most Powerful People in Real Estate. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. My guest today is Andrew Berman. Good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. 
You're welcome. He is an architectural and cultural heritage preservationist in New York City. He's known for being an advocate of affordable housing and LGBT rights. He was named executive director of the Preservation Society in 2002. He has served on the boards of the New York State Tenants and Neighbors Coalition, Housing Conservation Coordinators, the Chelsea Reform Democratic Club, the Hell's Kitchen uh, Neighborhood Association, and was founding member of the Westside Neighborhood Alliance and Friends of Pier 84. He is a member of the Board of Advisors of the Historic Districts Council. He was also a plaintiff in the lawsuit to remove private helicopter service from the Hudson River Park. Since 2002, the Society for Historic Preservation, under his leadership, has secured landmark and zoning protections in the South Village, the Meatpacking District, along the Greenwich Village waterfront, and in the East Village. The organization also led campaigns against development plans by Donald Trump, yay, and the New York University. Again, good morning. Thank you. Thank. Wow, I'm exhausted just You're hearing that. Impressive. Well, I, I was going to say I'm exhausted reading that. So what that <laughs> says that you no, know, that's all. But but I mean, how do you do it all? What what, what is all this about? Uh, well, you know, uh, as the old saying goes, if you love what you do, you don't work a, a day in your life. Um, you know, I have a great passion for New York City history and architecture and the character of our neighborhood. So, you know, getting to be involved in uh, preserving it and documenting it and celebrating it, um, building an appreciation for it really is, you know, just a, a privilege. Um, and I feel very lucky that I get to do it every day. Before we get started, the South Village. What is the South Village? This is a term, believe it or not, a native New Yorker all of my <laughs> long life. I've not heard it either. South Village, what is that? Oh, we get that a lot. Um, you know, it's uh, there are definitely old timers in the neighborhood who uh, use that term. It really applies to the area of Greenwich Village south of Washington Square, what was traditionally the more Italian-American part of Greenwich Village, uh, more where the tenements than the townhouses. Um, and that's the area that over the last 15 years we've actually focused a lot of our energies on. Uh, most of Greenwich Village was landmarked in the late 1960s, but that area south of Washington Square was not, and it was starting to change a lot, whether it was from NYU or other kinds of development. Um, and in the last uh, 15 years, we've gotten three historic districts designated there, protecting about 25 blocks and about 700 or so buildings. Um, so that really wonderful area, which a lot of people think of as the heart of Greenwich Village, you know, Bleecker Street, McDougal Street, Thompson Street, uh, Manetta Lane, um, uh, could have been destroyed, um, but now should be protected. All right. So in 2013, the South Village Historic District was designated, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the that's area right. you're talking about. And what sure. about the East Village, Lower East Side Historic District in 2012? That would be Delancey Street and all that that whole area? This particular uh, district was actually more in the north of Houston Street part. So really what most people think of as the East Village. Um, East Village, right. Yeah. So largely uh, um, around uh, 7th Street, 2nd Avenue, about uh, I think it was 350 buildings um, in that neighborhood that we got landmarked. All right. So before we go on, I, you know, everybody asks me all the time in real estate. So, so what makes something landmark? Why is something landmark? What are the designations? What are the special characteristics of a neighborhood, or sometimes even in just a block mm -hmm. that that you know falls under the landmark or historic umbrella? Mm -hmm. What what do you guys look for before you designate an, an area? Sure. As a landmark area. Well, we're a sort of a community advocacy group, so we don't get to pick, although we do get to advocate for buildings or neighborhoods that we think should uh, warrant uh, landmark protections. It's the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, which is a public agency appointed by the mayor that ultimately gets to choose what is a landmark, what's not a landmark, and then what happens to it. 
So the law, which was passed in 1965, is pretty open-ended. There just needs to be some sort of case that can be made that this is a, a building or an area that has some architectural or cultural or social significance to the city of New York. Right now, about 3% of New York City is landmarked, so it's a pretty small fraction of it. But it's a lot of the areas that we think of as really sort of the most kind of mm-hmm. historically rich parts of New York, whether it's Greenwich Village, Soho, Tribeca, and Lower Manhattan, parts of the Upper East East and West Side, several districts in Harlem, and throughout the boroughs, uh, Park Slope, Jackson Heights. Uh, there's some wonderful little historic districts in the South Bronx, as well as in Riverdale, uh, parts of Staten Island. So the the landmarking is spread throughout the city, but obviously concentrated in the older parts of New York. All right. With the words historic and with the words landmarked also comes the word restriction, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> sure. what most people don't understand is once you are designated landmarked, historic, whatever, you are restricted by lots of things. Explain Mm -hmm. that briefly before we move on to other topics. What can't you do when you are in this designation? Right. Well, the one thing that you can't do is certain kinds of work without getting the approval of the Landmarks Preservation Commission. The myth is that once you're landmarked, you can't ever change anything about your building, and that's not true. Um, But it is the Landmarks Preservation Commission that then gets to decide what you can or can't change. And it really varies widely depending on what the building is. Sometimes they'll say, you know, this is such an incredibly unique and important building and it's in pristine condition to the way it was 200 years ago. You know, you can replace things, but you've got to keep it looking the way that it is. In other cases, they may allow very dramatic changes, even going as far as allowing demolition and new construction to take place. So it's really a a very case-by-case basis. But basically, and this is more of what people ask me all the time, so you're restricted on the outside of the facade of a building or the Mm -hmm. property around that building, but on the inside, you can pretty much do whatever you need to do, and you don't have to run any of the renovation inside by Landmarks, correct? Well, what you have to do is you have to get your Department of Buildings permit, and then it's just sent over to the Landmarks Mm -hmm. Preservation Commission for them to sign off on it and and say, this doesn't affect the outside, so we don't care, basically. But that's right. The interiors, there's a a very, very small number of interior landmarks in New York City. Those are never private homes. It only applies to public spaces. Um, But with the exception of those interior landmarks, interiors are not regulated by landmarking. Vince, I'm sorry. What you're asking is that I have had that experience with a number of clients of mine that they want to do renovations in a beautifully landmarked building and it does take a little longer waiting mm-hmm. for that landmark and townhouses approval, especially because especially they townhouses do that, yeah. which i agree and i respect i think it, it's lovely that we're keeping the the restoration and preserving our history in mind but yes when you're on a budget and if there's some buildings sure. that uh, that charge by the day that you go over the time for renovation you have to be mindful of that we had a situation, my partner and I, on the Upper West Side um, on 85th Street, I think, West 85th Street Park Block. And, you know, years ago, when it was fashionable, they removed the, the stoop right, uh-huh. and, and put the door downstairs, the whole nine yards. So this person buying the house wanted to restore it all, put the stoop back. It's a landmark street. So they waited almost a year to get that. They were able restore to do all, to restore the outside. <laughs> wow. They were able to do all the inside. So they kind of just mm-hmm. were sitting and waiting for the actual approval to come on the outside. And I kept thinking, it's just a stoop, guys. It used to be here once before. It's not a big deal, right? Stoops can be very complicated. And this is probably less of an issue on the Upper West Side, but in the village, in a lot of cases, the streets have been narrowed. So where the stoop goes is now uh, extends into the public sidewalk. So it's even more complicated because you have to get permission from the Department of Transportation because you're actually technically taking public space, although once 100 or 200 years ago, it was privately owned space. Wow. All right. So we have uh, for two minutes left in this segment, but what is the society's mission when it comes to downtown Manhattan and how does that differ 
from you know properties uptown? Is there mm-hmm. a, more of a, a restriction downtown or more of a, a focus on uh, landmark designation downtown? Well, our focus is on Greenwich Village, the East Village, and NoHo. So those are the neighborhoods that we advocate for. And they definitely have a different character than uptown neighborhoods, which are wonderful as well. But, you know, it's a little more uh, informal, a little more human-scaled, off-the-grid, as we say. Uptown, you mean? Uh, oh, downtown. Downtown, downtown. okay. Yeah. Um, and that's uh, what we try to uh, maintain. You know, there's a incredibly rich uh, set of layers of history there um, that have to do with, you know, everything from the arts to civil rights movements, um, and just this incredibly charming architecture that you don't really see in that many other parts of New York City. I mean, we'll get into a lot more of it after the break, but for for example, you know, when you are faced with something, you get a lot of, you know, uh, town hall stuff and a lot of people mm-hmm. raising their hands and complaining and, and whining and moaning about X. And I want to get into a little bit about that, how we get past all that and how we actually still are able to designate an area Uh, as a historic district. We have to leave it there. Come back after the break. This is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back with Andrew Berman, and we're going to talk a little bit more about landmarks and historic districts. So, Andrew, while these taller, faster new developments in New York City seems to be par for the course, I mean, these glass uh, high-rises are popping up all over town, a crop of powerful anti-development voices uh, work behind the scenes to slow things down. So take us through (laughs) a little bit of how this process works. I mean, all of these guys know that I cry and carry on. I probably would be great in your organization about how my New York City seems to be disappearing by Mm -hmm. the day because all the mom and pops are being thrown down, the avenues are changing, 
And all of these, what I call Dallas, Texas glass buildings are popping up. Yeah. Really? Seriously? I mean, come on now. So what... <laughs> What is the biggest concern here? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think most New Yorkers share the concern that they, um, you know, if you've chosen to live in a neighborhood, there's a reason why you like the character, you like the qualities that it has. Um, and I think most New Yorkers recognize that the city is going to change, but they want to hold on to the aspects of it that they really care about. And a lot of cases that has to do with scale and a lot of cases that has to do with the way that it looks, a sort of basic level of density. Um, you know, some neighborhoods are going to dramatically transform. I mean, Long Island City is literally unrecognizable from what it was <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, uh, Unbelievable. You know, not that long ago. But not not every neighborhood in New York is But I think it looks better. Like but, but for example, that mm -hmm. that area looks mm -hmm. much better to me because I don't know what it looked like before. Just <laughs> <laughs> Whatever it looked like before. Whatever it, looked before. <laughs> it must look better now. <laughs> it, it was certainly very underutilized before, without right. a doubt. Um, but, fit. <laughs> uh, but there's, uh, you know, many other neighborhoods that are, you know, sort of wonderfully built out now. And while uh, I wouldn't say no change is appropriate, you want to sort of make sure that Park Slope or Greenwich Village continues to feel like Park Slope or Greenwich Village. These are irreplaceable neighborhoods that it would be a shame for us to lose. Well, but so is Greenwich Village. And for example, I can go way back to when the Richard Meyer buildings were being put up on the highway. And you can say, okay, fine, they're all the way west, they're all the way on the highway. But you know what? Those were an eyesore to me when you're driving up and down the highway and you see these these tall glass buildings. Now, of course, there are taller buildings these days. But what was the thinking behind that or how did that get approved? That was very controversial, and it's interesting. There was no approval needed for them. And uh, one of the things to kind of understand about the way real estate works in New York is there's some things that you can build what's called as of right, which means that it's not landmarked and you're abiding by the zoning. So all you have to do is get your building permits and you can just build. Whereas in other cases, if you're in a landmark district or you want to build something that doesn't conform with the zoning, you have to go through a public approval and review process. And that's more complicated. The public has an opportunity to weigh in on it. The public knows what's being proposed and can say, I don't like this. This should change. I think this will create problems. You may not get the outcome that you like, but you're actually part of the process of, of determining the sort of final product. So some things go through that and some things don't. And it really just bear, it depends on the location and what the regulations are. Um, the Richard Meyer Towers conform with the zoning. It was outside of the landmark district. Uh, they were definitely very uh, controversial. I think, you know, they're, they've been there for 10 or 15 years now and they're kind of uh, accepted as part of the landscape. One of the things that always sort of bugs me about them is you walk by and there's almost no sign of life. I mean, these <laughs> are, you know, at most third, fourth or fifth homes for people um, who live around the world. So. I think precisely my point, no. right? So let we can put those up somewhere else, right? Anyway, so who are these anti-development voices that, that kick up their heels and make all kinds of fuss when something like that or another project comes to comes to the table. Who are these people who are complaining? Sure. Well, I mean, it, there's all different kinds of voices. I mean, we like to think of ourselves not as anti-development. And in fact, uh, an incredible amount of development goes on in historic districts. And that's consistent with preservation, you know, renovations, adaptive reuse, modest additions, things of that nature. Um, and there are cases where we've agreed that a building was not of historic significance and could be uh, demolished and replaced with a new building, hopefully one that is uh, appropriate. But, um, you know, whether it's preservationists or just people who are uh, very concerned about what's being proposed next door to them, um, New Yorkers are opinionated and they, you know, let their, <laughs> really? You don't say. Uh, really, they let their opinions be known. And if there's a public process that um, something has to go through, they actually have an opportunity to, um, uh, to have a say. 
Um, and like I said, it, it really depends on if you're asking for a zoning change mm -hmm. or a zoning variance, mm -hmm. um, if it requires landmarks approval, um, then you have a way of doing it. Otherwise, you're kind of, you're probably just sort of stamping your feet and expressing your anger, but you're not likely to change the outcome much. And, right. Andrew, I got a question. What are like the common mistakes that a developer or an organization would make coming into a meeting with landmarks or a, like a community board meeting? Uh, what do you see as one of the biggest hurdles for you know, let's say a new developer to the city who wants to do a deal in the, you know, preserved zone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I would say the the most important thing to do is kind of look at the history of the area in terms of what's been allowed, what hasn't been allowed. Um, we provide a lot of that information on our website. We actually yeah. uh, compiled uh, a report that showed every single new approved building in the Greenwich Village Historic District in the almost 50 years of its existence okay. so that we and others could see this is what does get approved. Um, uh, so, you know, I think it's useful to look at um, what um, has happened before, what there's been pushback on, what people consider the kind of important <coughs> characteristics of that area. And then I think you have a better sense of what you're going to have problems with and what you might be able to do that's will fit what you're looking to achieve, but also get less pushback, whether it's from the the, the city agency or from your neighbors. When there's a rejection, is it usually come with a, here's, we don't accept this, but if you make these modifications, then it's okay, or is it just an outright rejection, and they have, and the developer has to figure it out for themselves? A co-op rejection? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish it's a co-op. reason. Don't have yeah. to yeah. redo that And that's one, where my mind is a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Well, it's almost always the former, not the latter, especially these days. So typically, when you go to the Landmarks Preservation Commission, if you propose something and they don't like it as is, it's very rare that they'll just say, nope goodbye, see you later. What they'll typically say is, this is the issue that we have in it, with it. If you make these kinds of changes, come back and mm. we will take another look at it. Um, and so they usually don't even vote it down, which would start, which would force you to kind of start the process all over again. Mm -hmm. They usually just say, we're not going to take a vote today, mm. but you've heard what our comments are. If you come back to us with a revised version, we'll look at the re mm. revised version. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, you know, for better and worse, they do try, I believe, very hard to work with property owners and developers to get to a point where everybody can be in agreement at the end of the day. Mm. Let me ask you a question. So with all of this and everything that you do every day, um, do you still prefer old New York or are you okay with how it looks today or how we are moving? <laughs> Honest answer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of old New York. I mean, you know, there's, there's things about New York that I'm not that sad or not here anymore. I mean, I, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I've lived here my entire life. I'm, I'll be turning 50 soon. Um, so, you know, I've seen New York through the 70s and the 80s. And, you know, I'm not that sad that there's less crime and that the city's, you know, a, a little less dirty. Um, there are things about the sort of gritty old New York that I definitely um, do miss. Um, there's a lot of new things that are, uh, you know, wonderful. And there are, you know, sort of new buildings and new neighborhoods that I really appreciate. So, you know, I want to see New York continue to change and grow. I want it to build on the things that I love about the city and not erase them. Tell us about your greatest success and your one of your greatest disappointments, because everything, we always start out wanting to do great things, but sometimes we do get disappointed. But by the same token, we really sometimes surprise ourselves, and we feel really good about many things. Sure. 
Well, you know, what we mentioned before, our effort to um, preserve and protect the South Village, I would say is, uh, personally, I feel was my, uh, sort of uh, my and the organization's greatest uh, victory. When I first began at GBSHP, uh, when I was interviewing for the job in 2001, it was something that I talked about that I wanted to pursue, and the board of the organization also wanted to um, pursue it. Um, what I loved about it was that we were sort of expanding the notion of what's worthy of preservation from just the sort of genteel townhouses to this more immigrant working class history, which is such an integral part of the story of New York. Um, and those neighborhoods were being sort of neglected and lost in terms of the um, whole preservation ethos. Um, so uh, it was great because what we were doing was we were highlighting the stories of sort of the, the average New Yorker and how they contributed to the city and how immigrants have been such the lifeblood of New York City um, and really honoring and protecting that. So that's, I would say, uh, one of the things I'm most proud of. Um, you know, this is always a surprise, and I get this question a lot, what sort of are you most disappointed by? Um, there's this, believe it or not, a parking garage called the Tunnel Garage that used to be located on Broom Street that we fought very, very hard to save. And you might say, like, who would fight to save mm -hmm. a parking garage? Yes. But believe it or not, this was one of the first uh, parking garages uh, built in New York in the 1920s. It had a, a medallion of a Model T Ford on the on the front of it that was beautiful. It was a 1920s vision of the future, of the sort of brave new automobile oh, world. So it was the loveliest, <laughs> sweetest little building you've ever seen. And it had it said Tunnel Garage on it in this very sort of like 1920s kind of lettering. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, it was uh, it was destroyed. Um, but you uh, tell me you kept the medallion. Well, the medallion actually they, they, we uh, asked the developer and he did to keep it. And it's on the top of the new building that replaced it, which is on the corner of uh, Broom and Thompson Street. So if you actually step back and you go to like West Broadway, you can see it. Oh, they wow. stuck it on the very top what of this address? new. Uh, it's the northwest corner of Broom and Thompson Street. When, when you say, I'm so curious, when you say like we tried to preserve it, but we couldn't, it was destroyed. Don't you guys have ultimate power? Like you, you so how, does that, wish, how does that work? I like, wish we did. We're a, we're a community advocacy group. So okay. it's, it's the city's landmarks preservation commission that oh, makes these decisions. I understand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, and we, you know, we waged a campaign. We actually got um, groups that uh, focused on Art Deco architecture from Miami and Los Angeles and all these other places to write letters to the city saying this is a significant building. It should be saved. It would be a shame to lose it. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I still think back fondly. I mean, this is such a, um, a, a sweet little building that it was just, it was a shame to see it go. <laughs> Andrew, we have a couple of minutes left in the segment. Tell us briefly, what is your involvement with the LGBT community and why is that important these days? Yeah, so um, one of the things I'm also really proud of is that at GBSHP, we've tried to kind of like sort of expand what we focus on in terms of preservation. Um, GBSHP spearheaded the campaign to get the Stonewall Inn landmarked, which is the city's first actually and only uh, landmark based on LGBT <coughs> history because of the riots that took place uh, there and around there uh, in 1969. We've actually proposed a few other sites throughout the city that are connected to the um, gay and lesbian civil rights movement um, as landmarks. So, you know, whether it's... Uh 
the LGBT civil rights history or African-American civil rights history, uh, the women's movement. We've actually worked very hard to document um, and celebrate and try to protect and preserve this kind of rich part of New York City's history, which is so interwoven with the story of expanding rights and um, it still uh, is. I mean, the, the, still it is. still is a you know a gathering point for a lot of uh, civil rights issues taking place today. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it feels like history is repeating itself some days. But yes, uh, you know, it, I'm more of a Julius guy too, for the record. So. Uh, <laughs> well, which Julius is we're trying to get landmarked as well. <laughs> great burgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah great, great burgers. Great actually. burgers. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so, where, where, you know, what's next in that in that endeavor? Mm-hmm. Anything well, in particular? Well, I mean, there's always so much that pops up in a, on, a, on a daily daily basis. But what's next? Do you yeah. Think? Uh, well, so you know, we launched uh, actually just around the time that our current president became president, we launched something called a civil rights and social justice map for our neighborhoods, where we documented and highlighted more than a hundred different sites in Greenwich Village and the East Village, where significant things happened or significant people live that were connected to various civil rights movements. Um, In a very short period of time, it got about 100,000 views. There was a real thirst for this, I think, especially in the kind of current environment. So, you know, while uh, advocating for landmarking buildings is a big part of what we do, it's not the only thing that we do. We do a lot of educating around this wonderful history and making sure that people know it and that they get that it's sort of all around them, that you can walk past a building that you might not give a second look to, but if you know, you understand that something incredibly important happened here. The first woman to run for president in the 1870s lived in this building Mm. on Bond Street. Or, you know, at Julius's, there was a a gay civil rights action in the mid-1960s, four years before Stonewall, that helped affect the laws that govern the way um, uh, uh, gay people previously had been discriminated against. So there's a lot of history that's sort of hiding in plain sight that we try to bring out. Mm. All right, we're talking to Andrew Berman, the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society of Historic Preservation. We have to take a break. We're live from Blastoff Productions here in New York City. This is Good Morning New York. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. 
are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back. We were talking to Andrew Berman just before the break. And now we're going to bring in our panel. Phil Horgan is here from Lease Break and Freely. Uh, Tracy Hammersley from Douglas Elliman, Parul Brombach from Compass, and Sean McPeak from Compass as well. Um, so, yeah. Phil, before we get started, I just wanted to ask you, give us, please, an update on what is happening with Freely and your march down the road to take over the world yes. of <laughs> real estate websites. Uh, taking over the world is 10% complete. Are um, you pinky or are you no, brain? That's, that's the question. Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, so well, first of all, yeah. remember to share the pledge, the four-point four pledge, pledge of transparency, www.freely.com, F-R-E-L-E.com, backslash pledge, and share that around, and you get early access, and the access, you, you, it's I'm, I'm already giving it to some close friends, some at this table are going to start to get access to it, so it's going to happen next week is the plan, so yeah. share that pledge, and you'll get early access. I mean, it's going great, Vince. It's um, I'm really excited about the site. I I really want as many agents to use it. Good response. And great response. Yeah, great response. Look, the, the, the trick is going to be how do we compete with a billion-dollar company? It's not like we have millions of dollars of marketing money. One step at a time. Right. But I believe if you do something with honor, with transparency, with integrity, which unfortunately the other side, I believe, is not doing, the, the competition. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, um, yeah, I, I really believe that will prevail. So that's the way. And, and I am also looking at this as a group effort. Like this, I want this website to be our website, the industry's website to forever preserve the integrity of the real estate marketplace. That is the goal. All right. So a week from now, freely.com, up and live and running and for all of us to take advantage. Absolutely. And to get feedback. I need feedback. Be harsh. There's a feedback button on every single page, a little purple button. You click that. You tell me. This stinks. I don't like this. Do this better. It's the only way we're going to be. It's the only way we're going to take over the world. <laughs> get, and we, as in the whole get, industry. Get ready. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Last month, New York City had its first cryptocurrency or Bitcoin real estate closing. The next week, an owner of the plaza floated the idea of selling a plaza token to a group of foreign investors. Now a hedge fund founder and tech investor and owner of a landmark townhouse, landmark townhouse on uh, at 10 East 76th Street is asking $30 million in U.S., Dollars or $45 million in Bitcoin. He's actually willing to accept Bitcoin. So he says he's a believer, a true believer in these networks, but it's very volatile because according to the Wall Street Journal, they could be down up to 60% or more in two weeks or three weeks. So, you know, my question is, first of all, has have any of us experienced a Bitcoin possibility in your transactions and what do you all think of this because i'm not quite I'm sure start. i'm there yet I, I think it's a brilliant marketing tactic because look we're all talking about this property now i mean so that's that's the genius of it the mm -hmm. fact that we're it's the truth of the matter is it's not really realistic to offer your properties in bitcoin because it's way too volatile but it gets people talking about it and i 
And he's I think, done his math, though. If you actually look at the numbers he's asking for, and if you look at the math behind it, what he's doing is mitigating the risk by the pricing differential that he's putting up. Right, in case so actually he's done it really brilliantly. He's thought it through well. But I, I also, I so I just think it's mostly a, a marketing tactic. But also there, there is a lot of millionaires out there that made money on Bitcoin. And I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, if you made fifty million dollars on Bitcoin, a hundred million dollars on Bitcoin, and you hear about this cool Manhattan property that's offered, oh, yeah. would you potentially just look into it? Yeah. So I, it's I monopoly think, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Bitcoin market is heavily affected by the trading volume. So if there's a lot of trades, the price of Bitcoin goes up. Uh, it's a lot of perception as well. Right. It's not it's not a currency. It's it's an asset. Uh, and it's predicated on the blockchain technology. Uh, there's a lot of issues with Bitcoin specifically uh, not being able to trade very quickly. So to make a transaction, it, it costs the amount it would uh, cost to uh, power a house for a year. Right. So it's an extremely inefficient cryptocurrency, whereas there's other cryptocurrencies that are much more efficient uh, to use and less fees. But if, but if the Bitcoin... Um transaction in this particular case works for this seller he can stand to earn 15 million dollars more correct i mean if the if if the cryptocurrency holds up if somebody's willing to give him you know 15 or 45 million dollars in exchange for the bitcoin if i mean it just depends it's only worth as much as people are going to trade it for or sell it for or buy it for Compare and contrast it to the stock market, because a lot of people out there are still saying to me or and, and uh, to everybody, what the hell is Bitcoin? I understand it's an asset. I understand it's a lot of things. But what is it? Or better said, how does it compare to your stock portfolios? What's the difference? It's an underlying technology. So blockchain is the underlying technology under cryptocurrency. And what it, it's about is that it is basically a, it's a, how do I say this? It's an extremely safe exchange of money that can be done, especially for black markets, for example, where the money can pass through pass through in a safe way where your money is not going to get lost. And yet at the same time, uh, it is black something... Black markets and safe kind of don't well, right, right, exactly. <laughs> work together. Oh, exactly. it's, it's, so, decentralized. Right. it's decentralized. It's decentralized and can't be tracked. Exactly. It, okay. And it can't be tracked. And so there is, there, you know, it, it, exactly. So, and not only that, but there's the way it's being perceived and the way it's caught up. I mean, for example, like Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan was like, this is craziness. And his kids are investing in cryptocurrencies. So, I mean, there's... His kids are well diversified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, right? So, I mean, it, it's a really interesting, very volatile scenario that's tough to predict. But as of right now, seems like it's got legs. I mean, I don't think that this guy is stupid for doing what I think, he's doing. I think, I think there's a massive risk, especially when, you know, you have the Chinese government outlawing uh, exchanges yeah. For that, and and honestly, these exchanges are kind of the antithesis of what the technology and the currency is supposed to be. Those are what get hacked and how people lose hundreds of millions of dollars. It's supposed to be decentralized completely. So I'm able to send my Bitcoin to Tracy and Peru, not to like some exchange. And right. that's kind of where these valuations are are being uh, are being tinkered with. But I think the other coins and the tokens, like the Plaza Hotel token, for instance, I think people could get behind that and you can own a piece of the Plaza Hotel without can, the middleman. I can so see that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, not, not that I'm a naysayer, but, you know, on this particular... Technology. I'm not there yet. I think Phil hit it. But um, yeah, I, I completely agree. But, but Bitcoin, Sean, you mentioned other cryptocurrencies. I have actually haven't even heard of anything. There's Litecoin, Ethereum. Ethereum. There's Litecoin, like cryptocurrencies Litecoin. just used for That's buying other cryptocurrencies. <laughs> there's uh there's one called Wax that uh 
um, I, I know the founder of. It's a huge one. It's for video games. So it's in-app, in-video game purchases. And it's like one of the strongest ones there is. It's cool. Yeah, it is. It's, it's it, you just know. It's cool. It is. It's, just, just it's, it's worth what you think it's worth. I mean, exactly. You know, it is, that's what it is. Well, but I think it'd be, it's volatile and it's new, but doesn't mean it doesn't have legs. But it you is. Know what? Tracy, you and I all sit on the sidelines and watch this develop. And, and we listen, can be I, Luddites I, that maybe we it. missed the boat, but yeah. I'm very skeptical. But it is based on. Hey, my blo- money's not in it yet yeah. either. The, um, so, yeah. The blockchain <laughs> technology that it's based on is 100% here to stay. It's going to revolutionize Absolutely. the future. I, I agree. And probably, I, I mean, a lot of lawyers are going to be out of work because it is going to help uh, with contracts between two parties without the middleman. I think it could eliminate title insurance yet. completely, yes. the blockchain technology. Yes. I think title chain, of, title insurance could be totally yeah. unnecessary yeah. Yep. If, if we're if we're trading properties that's with the blockchain. Somebody said to yeah. me the other day, if you think you have billionaires today, just wait. And the, the amount of billions that these people are going to be amassing over time is going to be incredible. All right, let's move on. If you're looking for a New York City apartment on the cheap and you keep hearing terms like rent regulated, rent controlled, and rent stabilized, these are things we don't haven't talked about recently, you're not sure if these things are the same or different or even if they matter or apply to you when you're out there searching for a rental, right? Um, so what are the details on rent regulation and advice on how to find a rent stabilized apartment in New York? Can you still find a rent stabilized apartment in New York? I did. You could definitely find a rent-stabilized apartment. It's almost impossible to find a rent-controlled apartment in Tell New us York. the difference. Tell us the difference. Um, okay, so I'm not going to give you the difference in terms of the legality of it because no. I, I don't know. But just from a broker's perspective, consumer's perspective, rent-controlled apartments, maybe there's tens of thousands left. Maybe that's about it. And they that's are – You can't pass con- them on to family members. Then it basically deregulates. People generally die in the apartment because the, the deal they're getting is so good. I mean maybe they're paying $500 for a three-bedroom on Park yes. Avenue kind of thing. It's an argument for why renting over buying every time. Yeah. So um, now – a lot, I, then there was another program, rent stabilization. I, I can't remember if the rent control became rent stabilized. I don't remember exactly, but, but the point is, is about there's about a mi- different programs. Okay, different programs that about a million rent stabilized apartments still. The thing about these is that you have to be a little careful because you don't always get a good deal in a rent stabilized apartment. Um, it's not always below market, the price, because there are certain rules that the landlord has to follow. Like they could only uh, increase the uh, the rent so much each year. They have to offer you a, a renewal. There's a bunch of rules you have to follow. Often they're below market rate and they're great, great if you can get one. But a lot of times they're not because if the landlord could increase the rent, they'll increase it. And sometimes it winds up going above market rent. So I guess my point is just as a, a word of caution, just because something's rent stabilized doesn't necessarily mean it's a below market rate apartment. So you Absolutely have to know not. your numbers. But the Absolutely. rent is capped at how much it can be raised each year. Yeah, they're right. doing a one or two year renewal. So there's That's that. That's the difference. It's not like you're, you know, you're breaking the bank. You're still pay, probably paying market rate, but it's capped on the increases. All right, all is fair in love and war. And apparently New York City real estate these days, now that the market favors them, apartment buyers are emboldened and are increasingly Playing the field by putting in offers on multiple properties simultaneously. I just saw this last week for the first time in a long time. It's a strategy that requires some finessing and awareness of the pitfalls. Some, but not all, brokers who Brook Underground spoke to recently are seeing buyers offering multiple bids, which they say is emblematic of a swing of the pendulum now to the buyer side. Uh, and they have sales have, even though sales have dropped in both Manhattan and Brooklyn. So are you seeing this with buyers? You, you know, you're the listing agent. You're getting a bid from another one of our friends and colleagues, and but you don't know that behind the scenes they are also bidding on other properties. Oh, Vince, you do know. That. I've started asking. I've asked mm-hmm. another broker. Is this mm-hmm. the only property for which you're submitting an offer Absolutely. for these specific customers? One hundred percent. And if you're an honest broker, I've gotten 
a lot of confirmation of what you're saying. Yeah, we have another place that they're looking at too. I just did that the other day, and I did not think to ask that question until last night, actually. I was reading through this stuff, and I thought, <laughs> let me ask, because I kind of felt it was a little fishy anyway, and I asked it's the question. It's a shady person that's not going to give you an honest answer, No, he right? gave me an honest answer. Yeah. He said, listen, we were, we're bidding on something else in Chelsea, and I'm thinking, okay, so Hell's Kitchen, Chelsea, where does this compare? But it does raise a question, like, the buyer's agent, should they answer that question honestly or not? And you should always be honest, obviously, but well, should I they... Well, I would always what, honestly answer. But what I mean is, I don't mean, should they answer the question? Right. In other words, like, if you if you ask a buyer's agent, are you submitting other offers? Yeah. As a, I think I'm it's how sure. you answer it that's yeah. really, really poignant. So yeah. for all the brokers out there listening to this, I think that the, the, in order to be the best representative for your buyer, in fact, you can state this in a way that works to your favor, which is right. these guys are absolutely serious. They are absolutely, I mean, be honest about it. If they're kind of just playing around, then you don't want to set those expectations with our fellow brokers either. But, you know, they are extremely serious. They recognize that there's a weakness in the market right now and they're, they want to capitalize on it. And they're not so married, whether they live in Hell's Kitchen or Chelsea, because that's the world we live in now. So I'm just letting you know up front that they're serious. They're going to move, but they're going to move with the better deal. Mm-hmm. Now you're working in, in favor right. of your All buyer. Right. We, Absolutely. Right. We, we have to go to commercial. Uh, this is Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We will be right back. Don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com It's not easy to make it big in New York City. It's even harder to sustain that success for decades. However, two teams have defied those odds due to their formulas for success. Both have all-star rosters performing at the top of their game. Each have an undying commitment to greatness, a willingness to evolve, superior training programs, and ownership that invests heavily in their products. It only seemed natural for the world's most valuable sports brand to partner with Halstead, a market leader in the New York metro area, and now proudly serving as the official luxury real estate firm of the New York Yankees. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America 
at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, we are back in our last segment. I'm here with Phil Horrigan, Tracy Hammersley, uh, Perul Brumbat, uh, Sean Mpeak, and Andrew uh, uh, Berman is sticking around with us as well. So I wanted to continue our conversation briefly before the break, before we get on to the next topic. And I just wanted to say that I think buyers today are putting in multiple offers in multiple different situations because they're trying to get the best deal out there because, as we've been saying the last couple of weeks on this show, it is now declared a buyer's market. And, you know, it used to be I like the apartment, I like the neighborhood, I want the building, I want all of these things. So if I have to pay a little more, it doesn't matter. It's interesting how the world changes in the buyer's psyche and mindset that now all of a sudden that they feel like they have so much control, it isn't necessarily about the apartment choice. It's about getting the best deal. I believe that is so wrong. You wanted to say something, Tracy. I do, Vincent. This is something that might be um, a little bit confusing to people outside of the New York City market listening to this. As a licensed Florida broker as well, I'm privy to the way kind of the rest of the world outside of New York City, even quote unquote upstate New York, which is anything outside of New York City. In New York City, we have the good faith offer, good faith acceptance system. Anywhere else, your offer is the contract. So they might take a backup contract, but if you're writing a contract, you can't go willy-nilly throwing around multiple contracts because, or you could find yourself potentially in contract with more than one property. With the offer itself is the contract? The offer is the contract. And a lot of times you're meant to put some consideration. When I'm doing an offer for a buyer of mine in Florida, I say, you know, we'll put down X amount as a deposit upon offer acceptance. Before a number's even agreed upon. Correct. Correct, because yeah, that's all, the older school system. LA the same way. Yeah, yeah anywhere except for New York City. I've not actually heard of anywhere else that they do the good faith offer, good faith acceptance. So then you have to question, well, is this operating in good faith to be offering multiple bids? But you are trying to do the best for your buyer. And sometimes, as Perul was starting to say, though, or as I said, the way you answer can help because maybe it will goad me to really twist my seller's arm. Listen, they like your property best, but they're going to go for something else if we can't mm-hmm. come to a meeting of the minds. That's exactly Absolutely. where I am right now with the one from last night. And, you know, I, I kind of chuckle a little bit about the term good faith in New York City real estate. Interesting. <laughs> Oxymoron. <laughs> well, yeah. American <laughs> culture, good faith real estate. <laughs> It works in theory, but anyway, on the heels of all that, we always talk about uh, having great relationships with our co-broker friends, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, mean, it means the world to me, and I know it does to all of you. So thinking about selling your home in New York City, before you hire a listing broker to help you sell it, you should learn about what co-broking is about. Because I think a lot of times when, when listing agents come to talk to you and they want your exclusive and they want your property, they just want your property, they're not necessarily going to explain to the entire process of how they're going to sell that property. And in our world, working with co-brokers is paramount. I mean, in, in, in my opinion, I'd rather sell a, a property, a deal with a with an agent on the other side of it. A good agent. Than direct, a good agent, of course, than direct because there's a whole bunch of pluses for that. Let's talk a little bit about co-broking for the, the, the folks out there who may not understand it, the buyers out there, the sellers out there, and certainly the new agents out there who don't really understand it, right? Why, why is co-broking? Well, what's so the what? saying first? First of all, what is it? Co-broke or go-broke? Co-broke or go-broke. Well, there you go. We're saying what's the saying, we're saying. Uh, co-broking is where you have two brokers involved in the deal, one representing the seller or, sorry, one representing the seller or the landlord, and on the other side, you have a broker representing the buyer or the renter. Uh, that's what co-broking is. You also share the commission, and that is where some brokers get a little antsy because they don't want to share the commission. They'd rather not, quote-unquote, co-broke. They'd rather work directly with the tenant or directly with the – or the renter, excuse me, or directly with the buyer. Um, so Which I, is very, very short-sighted. It is. Right. I mean, I would say if you're a starting agent 
and you're even you even have that mindset at all, look at all the agents that are doing really well in the business, all the successful agents. If you ask any of them, what do you think about co-working? They'll all say, it's amazing. I love it. I always co-broke. You want to keep up relationships with your other broker friends. But most importantly, you're doing half the work. And you're getting, maybe you're getting half the commission, but you're also doing half the most, work. Most That's importantly so. is anybody who's a Rebney member, which is about, I believe, like 97% or something of the number of brokers and brokerages in Manhattan and well, I guess that's a Manhattan number. It might not be the same for Brooklyn. I'm not sure. Probably lower. Um, yes. Uh, but uh, that means that as a Rebney member, you have agreed to being blind to direct versus indirect deals so okay. that you are equally going to present any offer that you're bringing to your seller um, with not with, with, with effectively taking out. Yeah, without ta- effectively you're taking ethics. out your yeah, you're taking out your selfishness in it all. Your and you're looking out for your client's best interest. And why this is in the client's best interest is it's a it's a simple case of economics. It's supply and demand. So the higher you create a demand, a.k.a. every buyer out in the marketplace who is looking for an apartment gets to have an equal chance at being able to purchase this apartment is in their seller's best interest because the higher the demand, the higher the, the pricing then can can be for this apartment for the for this. I mean, the higher at a higher price can the seller sell his apartment. So that is acting in the seller's best interest and you're representing the seller's best interest if you are the listing broker. Barbara Corcoran was the one who actually pioneered co-broking in such an incredible, beautiful way where, you know, it, at the basis of it is sort of sharing is caring, you know, and um, and ultimately it builds community within brokers. It's we learn so much during our transactions from each other as well. And ultimately, it's when you have the reputation of being a trustworthy broker who is going to treat your client, the the opposing client, uh, broker's client as equally as you would to a direct deal that absolutely builds longevity like Phil was speaking of. I, I mean, when I'm, when I'm talking to a listing, I just explain it very simply. It's um, it's mostly a B2B business. Uh, 95% of my deals are co-broked. Um, I'm looking for brokers. My marketing is geared towards brokers. Uh, you know, the consumer facing websites, that's beautiful. You make sure that it looks good when they're staring at the property at one o'clock in the morning and they're <laughs> biting their fingernails. But uh, mostly the the real, if you know, the real selling part of it and uh, comes with the brokers. And it's it's much easier to do a deal with a broker who's bound by a code of ethics like Rebney than it is by uh, also, some it, direct it, buyer. It's exactly what Tracy said. And especially when when it's a good broker. Because right. we, we, we work with a lot of people who sometimes aren't so great. Because yeah, then you have to do double the work new. for half the commission, yes. you know, <laughs> get the A for the group project. But, yes. but the, uh, the listing agent, or I should say the co-broker, the buyer's agent or the renter's agent, will help you get the deal done as a as a listing agent. That's what a lot of people don't realize. It'll actually help you close the right, deal as right, well. Right. There's just so many benefits. I mean, right. the only the only negative, the, the way brokers think about it, is I'm making less money. And as as Pearl said, that's so short sighted. You're really not because you're it's able to so move on to the next because you have some exactly. cycles. You have some time. Yeah. You're not just focusing on one deal that can you know, go sideways as everything goes sideways in this business. So we all know that you might be getting double the commission, but you're doing triple the work at a minimum. So absolutely. (laughs) Right. Right. And as as Sean said, I mean, it's all about ethics. And to me, probably more than 95% of my deals are done uh, um, co-broke. And, you know, in a seller's hot seller's market, you know, there are a lot more direct deals because people just 
fly out of the woodwork and want to buy things like yesterday. Anyway, unfortunately, as always, we're out of time. That's it for me. That's our show for today. Thanks to my guest, Andrew Berman, uh, for being here and the panel. Of course, as always, always remember how wonderful life is while you are in this world. That's <laughs> thanks to Ernie, uh, Bernie, Bernie and Elton John. <laughs> Be kind to one another for all of us at Voice America all around the world. Thanks for joining us, and I will see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. 